Ladies and gentlemen, the man you are about to meet is the author of Hot Commodities, Adventure Capitalist, The Ultimate Road Trip, Investment Biker, Around the World with Jim Rogers, recently, A Gift to My Children, A Father's Lessons for Life and Investing. He is not only known as a legendary investor, but he is considered the Indiana Jones of finance. But in my opinion, ladies and gentlemen, he is the Jonathan Livingston Siegel of finance and investing because he chooses to fly in rarefied terrain and not follow the flock. This encompasses most of his life. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to its rainmaking time, Jim Rogers. Welcome to I'm the delighted rain. to be here. Let's make some rain. Let's make some rain. Well, the first thing I wanted to tell you was that I read both of your books, uh, two of the five, A Bull in China and Hot Commodities. And the first thing I wanted to do was to go into hot commodities quickly with you because it was so startling that most of the world could miss all of the opportunities, an entire industrial complex of how the world works. And one of the things that made you so fascinated was commodities. How could most of the world misunderstand the world of things? Well, there were a couple of reasons. First, I should say, periodically, the world has been most enamored of things, commodities. Whenever there's a bull market, they get very interested. It's like anything else. When there's a bull market in real estate, people are interested. When there's a bull market in shipping, people are interested. But commodities went into a bear market in the 80s and 90s, and so most people forgot about them, ignored them, Wall Street firms used to make about 30% of their income from commodities in the 70s. The bull market came, and so they closed down. All sorts of stories arose about how you always lose money in commodities, etc. So when commodities are hot, people get interested. But I like to find things that are not hot. I like to find things that are depressed and ignored. I often look at such things, and if I find changes taking place, I find opportunities, and I, I try to capitalize on those opportunities. That's what happened again with commodities at the end of the 1990s. You talked about in, in hot commodities that most people cannot detect a bull market when it's coming. Why is that? Well, usually because things are depressed and, every, and quote, everybody knows that's a bad investment, whatever the investment happens to be. And so they ignore it, and they leave it alone, and they don't even bother to look because, quote, everybody knows you lose money if you invest in that field. They don't watch, see the changes that are taking place. Most people wait until prices are going up before they start looking at something, and usually things have to go up quite a lot before, things, before people get interested. Of course, then it's getting late in the day, but that's, uh, unfortunately, that's the way the world has always worked. I don't like it, but I learned that early on in the investment business, and so I learned that I should be looking at things where, quote, everybody knows it's a terrible investment. <laughs> you see the world from the ground up, which is why you took this motorcycle trip of grand and galactic proportions to give you access to this reality that most people are not interested in accessing and wouldn't take the time, the energy, and the money to do. Obviously, you're very passionate. I've listened to practically every online interview that that's ever showed up there, read these books from cover to cover, and it seems like your your basic business, part of it, is 
opportunity identification. Would you say that? Well, again, you could put it that way. I like that. I like that turn of phrase. First, I should say to you, I went around the world on a motorcycle because I've always wanted to seek adventure, and I've always wanted to see the world. I was not specifically looking for investment ideas. Now, the nature of who I am and my background is such that if I see opportunities, <laughs> clearly I'm going to do something. I'm not just going to keep riding and say, wasn't that interesting? So whenever I would come across something, it doesn't matter whether I'm traveling around the world seeking adventure or walking down the street. If I see something that looks like an, an opportunity, then I try to do some more and perhaps take advantage of it. But, but it seems like the thread that ties everything together in the whole gestalt of your life, Jim, is that you are fascinated with the interconnectedness and the systemic workability of everything, how something can happen in one part of the world in one industry and be impacting life in another part of the world. And you've had this fascination, as you say, like a three-dimensional puzzle of trying to figure it out. Is that true? Well, that's one of the fascinating things about life, the world, the investment world, especially. It's always changing. There is a four-dimensional puzzle when you throw in time as well. You know, three dimensions are complicated enough, but then with much of the world, there's, there's time because things are always changing. Even if you figure out the three-dimensional puzzle, oh, my gosh, now it's a day later or a month later. And things have changed, so you have to start over again. But that's what makes life so fascinating. That's what makes investing so fascinating. And certainly when I walk, when I go around the world, whatever I'm doing, if I see something, I try to put the pieces together to see what caused it and what's going to happen next. You sound like you're running. Are you taking a jog? <laughs> I'm on my bicycle. Incredible. Actually, that's inc- Talk about I'm multitasking. <laughs> I'm just working out while I'm trying to do two birds in one. Oh, my God. I was going to say. I'm having a heart attack. You'll be the the second to know. I was going to say, I'm the one who should be nervous and breathing heavily, not you. (laughs) No, no. It's just a simple bicycle. Don't worry. (laughs) Okay. Very good. Um, I love the part in Hot Commodities. How I want to go back to this because this, to me, is such a primer and an eye-opener. Aside from a bull in China, which totally awakened me to China and all the mistruths I've ingested in others about China, the fear of China, the foreignness of it, you really articulated and really brought it into a full living color texture of opportunity. I've never seen a country translated so vividly. I could feel it booming in the book. But in hot commodities, I really want you to talk about just spend a couple of minutes about what you saw as a missing opportunity that made you form an index, the Rogers International Commodities Index. What happened? I, I saw the commodities had been in a long bear market. I saw that the prices were very cheap historically because everybody had ignored them. I saw that nobody had been investing capacity for commodities for about two decades. And I saw the demand was continuing to grow. I mean, after all, I'd been around the world, and I could see what was happening out there in the world. So I said, well, it's time to invest in commodities again after doing some more research and homework. So what I would do was invest in a commodities index because 
index investing has been proven repeatedly to be right to invest. And I, at that time, I was about to head off around the world again for three years on my second trip, and so I wasn't going to be able to sit and really focus too much on any kind of investing. So I said, well, I'll just put index funds, put my money in the index fund, and off I'll go. Well, I did my homework, and I found out there was no decent index for commodities, which made me even more optimistic about commodities, because when I realized this index was so ignored and forgotten, there wasn't even a good index to put my money into commodities in an index fund. The only way I could do it was to start my own index. I would not have put any of my money into any of the existing indexes, commodity indexes, at that time. When you say there wasn't a good index, explain it, though. Why? What was not working in the indexes that you saw that you thought were shoddy or just ineffective? Well, one of the existing indexes was by Goldman Sachs. Told them this, so I'm not speaking out behind their back. And but I looked at it, and it was about 65 or 70 percent oil. I said, "What kind of index is that?" But more importantly, I found that it changes very dramatically every two or three years. They change it depending on what what goes up in price. Well, I mean that's not the way best. Mother invests that way. She likes to buy something after it goes up, but I don't. So I said, well, I can't invest in this index because if you invest with Goldman Sachs, you'll have no idea what you're going to own in three or four years, three or four years. And they, they have no idea either because it always changes. So I looked at the others. The Dow Jones had an index, which they, they didn't even know they had a, an index. <laughs> it was so ignored. I had to tell them about their index. So then... They started getting interested, but their index is pretty hopeless as well, even when they renewed it. So I found problems with all of the existing indexes. I could go down one by one, but let's not waste our time. Although I guess I should talk about CRB, the Commodities Research Bureau. I thought that would be the obvious one, but it changes. I think it's changed 10 or 12 times in the last 50 years. And it's waiting were it's waiting time were ludicrous. For instance, it gave orange juice and crude oil the same weighting. Well, I don't know about your life, but crude oil is much more important in my life than orange juice and in most people's too. So each one of them had problems. They've all been revised since, since I criticized them, but none of them still or I wouldn't put my money in any of them still, even with a new good development. Did you remember last year when Stephen Jobs got very ill and he took a hiatus from Apple? And at that time, the stock went down 100 points. Do you remember that? Or did you hear of that? Yes, yes. Well, the reason I'm bringing that up is I think it's very poignant that most of the world would invest in stocks that could be altered by perceptions in seconds but be very afraid to get involved in the stuff of life, the things of life, which are commodities. And yet you can inflate stock prices and not even have to be making money in a company. And so I'm just wondering if you think that there will be more receptivity in commodities given the state of the world now, particularly agriculture, mining, gold and silver, minerals, particularly now the state of the world? 
Well, there will be since the bull market gathers steam. I assure you, once once commodities continue going up in the five, ten years from now, everybody will be buying commodities. But that's still a ways away. More and more people are are buying. Obviously, you make a very good point about stocks. You know, virtually none of us had a clue what a dot com was or how it worked. But many people were pouring money into it. Even the chairman of IBM cannot fully understand IBM. He's got hundreds of thousands of employees, factories, competitors, parts. I mean, it's impossible to fully understand IBM or Toyota or anything. However, with commodities, we all know what they are. We know what cotton is. I mean, before we go to work every day, we've used coffee, sugar, wheat, corn, Orange juice, sugar, uh, we have used rubber if we go running, we use cotton and wool and silk if we get dressed. Before we get to work, we use lead and zinc. I mean, we know what this stuff is. And it's a lot simpler, a lot easier, I should say, to commodities than it is stocks. All you have to do with natural gas is figure out is there too much or too little natural gas. Now, I did not say that was easy. I just said it's a lot easier than trying to analyze natural gas companies. There are 500 natural gas companies in the world. Who knows? If you get it right, of course. If you know a company is going to discover natural gas in, in Chicago, then you should buy all the stock you can. By the way, you should call me up, too, because I want to know about it as well. But the <laughs> problem is most of us don't get it right. Studies show that over and over. Enron was a natural price of natural gas had tripled, and yet Enron still went bankrupt. Enron went to zero. Commodities can never go to zero. They can go down, but they can never go to zero. So to my mind, commodities are less risky and simpler to understand than stocks, and yet it's hard, it's, it's hard to educate people to understand it. It seems also that there's a stigma surrounding reports of people losing all their money, which you talk about, the inflated stories, but also how people don't know what they're doing. They get in the field, they start leveraging, and they're not really educated on what they're getting invested in. And you hear these huge future losses. And so I think futures have been given a faulty perception. Well, they have, and as I said, it's partly because there was a bear market in the 80s and 90s. Many people left the business. Stockbrokers, most stockbrokers are not even registered to deal in commodities, and so a lot of stories arise, and if you ask a stockbroker, he will, because he's not, he's not registered, he couldn't sell you a commodity if he wanted to, so I'm telling you all the, you know, the old stories about losing money, but you're perceptive. Most of the reason people lose money in commodities is because and they buy by borrowing huge amounts of money. I mean, with commodities, you can borrow 90 or 95% against any position. Needless to say, when you borrow that much money, you better be exactly right, because if you're not, you're going to get wiped out pretty quickly. That's what happens to many people. Therefore, the stories arise. But you don't have to buy commodities that way. IBM, you, many people, most people put up 100% of the money when they buy it. And then they don't have to worry about 
margin calls or too much borrowing or anything else. You can buy commodities the same way. You can buy wheat and put up 100% of the price, and you never have to worry about a, a margin call or sudden swings wiping you out. But people don't, don't think about those, those things because, after all, they're full of stories. It's been a big, it was a horrible market for 20 years, et cetera. I have a question about a completely different area right now, having to do with this concept of special drawing rights that the IMF is now pumping out and this call for super currencies. It's very disconcerting in a way because we don't really know what the people in charge have in mind to do in terms of establishing a new reserve currency. And I know that the governor of the central bank in China had called at the G20 meeting, I think it was in April or March, for a new super currency, but to include Chinese currency, because right now the special drawing rights don't include the Chinese currencies. And I was wondering, A, what do you feel, what's your sense of these special drawing rights? Do you like them? Do you not like them? Are you concerned about them? And do you think that they're just another vehicle to print more money, so to speak? Well, first of all, you started off by saying central bank leaders. Let me tell you, they don't know either. And even the ones you think they know don't have a clue what they're doing. has been demonstrated over and over by nearly every central bank in the world in the past five or ten years. Actually, longer than that, but certainly in the past five or ten years. The world understands we have a problem with the dollar, the U.S. dollar. It's a, we're the largest, America's the largest debtor nation in the history of the world, and the debts are rising, not... Everybody knows they've got to do something about getting rid of the dollar because it's being debased at a rapid rate by the U.S. government. I mean, it's a conscious effort by our government. I hate it. I, I hope everybody hates it because debasing your currency has never, ever been good for the long term. It has never been, and it never will be good in the long term or even the medium term. But it really doesn't matter what I think because the governor, the head of the central bank in America, has said he is in favor of printing money, and he's doing so. So the rest of the world is worried, as am I, as I hope all of your listeners are. This is not going to work. Now, the Chinese did suggest looking at or considering special drawing rights. I don't think special drawing rights will work because most people want some, something they think is real money. I don't think most people in the world are going to think special drawing rights are real money, and so they're going to be leery of using whatever this is the bankers tell them it's now real money. I'm delighted that everybody's thinking about something else and looking for something else. I don't think that will work, but other people have suggested other things. Something does have to be done, though. We all know. The other disconcerting part of the special drawing rights are kind of two or threefold. One part is that there are a basket of currencies that can be changed in a moment. And so you really don't know the value is ambiguous in what you're de in what you're really dealing with can be changed by the people who issue them or the agency that issues them. The second thing is about the special drawing rights is that I guess the IMF is being recommended to oversee the entire central banking system of the world. Everything, every transaction, everything that happens financially. 
And I was wondering where you're at with that, because that's deeply disconcerting to me, and I'm sure to others across the world. Well, it should be uh, disconcerting. That, that's sure. I mean, your point about it can be changed at will is very valid. Investment want to have some idea of what they're investing in. Um, you want to know what it's going to be in three years. You want stability. You want transparency. You want something that you know what, you, what you've got. The other criticism, of course, is that it, it's, it's, it's all of these currencies run by the IMF. Well, the IMF has never been right about anything. It's astonishing if you go back and look at IMF history since it was founded. And by the way, it was founded for a specific reason after the Second World War. But since then, that reason no longer exists, and so the, the IMF over the years has totally changed its mission because, after all, they all wanted to keep their jobs, so they came up with other things that they could do, and it is mind-boggling just how totally, totally wrong the IMF has been repeatedly in the past 50 or 60 years. There are several thousand people who work there. They have unbelievably good pay packages. They have a great pension plan. It is staggering how well they take care of themselves. But if you go around the world and look at what they've done, you would be appalled. Go around the world, which I did, but you can get out to their annual report. Their annual report for 1997, or pick any year and see what they said, and then look to see what happened over the next few years, and you're staggered that they even bothered to print the annual report. It turned out to be so wrong. So there are many, many reasons that special drawing rights probably will not work. It could work, but not with the IMF running it and not the way the, the, the concept is portrayed right now. Also, in lending money to nations, I'm sure you are very well familiar with the IMF lending special drawing rights to nations and then coming in and taking over all their minerals, all their agriculture, all their mining, everything, when they can't pay them back. And, of course, they know that when they're lending that they can't pay them back. So I think that that's even more evidence how serious and important commodities are. The fact that the IMF would indebt other nations knowing they're going bankrupt, knowing they're going into spiraling exponential debt, but then go in for the kill to take the commodities, the minerals, metals, whatever they can get in terms of real things. As far as I'm concerned, the IMF should be abolished. The world would be better off without the IMF, but, uh, and I've explained why. One of the other things you talked about was the very big concern about the fact that the supply in minerals like zinc and aluminum and other things often takes 10 years to bring to market, and there's shorter and shorter supplies. Can you explain that? To audiences, what you're finding, what your research has been, and your experience? Once someone opens a mine and starts mining, the reserves start declining that day because, you know, you're digging the, the reserves out there. And they are, all mines have a certain lifespan. Eventually, you dug all the tin out, or you dug all the lead out, whatever it happens to be. And so the mine is depleted, closed up, and abandoned. The plant all over the world and have been for thousands of years. Then, if you do want to open a new mine, 
you have to raise money, you have to get approvals, you have to do a hundred things. And on average, any mining company can tell you this, on average in the world today, it takes 10 years to bring a new mine on strength. Some countries it's worse, U.S. is worse for the environment and the other regulations. In China, it's shorter, depends on the country. But on average, it takes 10 years to bring a new mine on stream. In the meantime, all the other mines in the world are being depleted because by nature of the beast. You know, if you have a copper mine, it doesn't just, it's not sitting there making copper. There's only so much copper in that, in that deposit, and once it's all mined, that's the end of the story. So all mines are depleted while we're sitting around wondering if and when new mines will come on stream. What do you think would expedite the ability to, A, locate mines, locate the minerals in the mines, or whatever it is that it, we are mining for, and shorten the time span? Is it better technology to locate it and to find it and extract it? Well, the main thing is needed for more discovery that is more money because, you know, much of the world has been uh, explored and my, my nose stretch is nearly all of the world, but at least a lot of the world has already been explored looking for mineral deposits. So what is necessary is a lot more money now if you want to increase exploration. But of course, people don't want to put more money into exploration because unless you find something, unless you find something very big, you're going to lose 100% of your money. So, not, and these days, not much money going into exploration. mines. But even then, if you discover it, it's going to take a long time. I guess if you discovered it, you could please fewer regulations, fewer requirements, and not, not make it so difficult. Once upon a time, it didn't take 10 years to bring a mine on strength. But those regulations have grown up over the years. So now it's, it's very difficult to bring on a mine in most parts of the world. That would have to change, too. I did an interview the other night with... Paul Smith, who was part of the Special Forces, and he was one of the early adapters of something called remote viewing, which the NSA had funded a $50 million investment into this very, what you and I and others would consider an esoteric kind of parapsychic project where they actually discovered a methodology accessing data, they could locate anything, transcending time and space, literally locate anything. They found out that all matter is still recognizable, locatable, alive from conversation to the descriptions of where things are located way beyond clairvoyance. They used this methodology called remote viewing. And I'm just wondering if the mindset that you brought in that allowed you to become receptive to the world of things and the mindset in you that became open to where people weren't looking, I have a feeling that one of the ways to quicken the exploration and discovery timeframe is to use new methods for discovery that are proven verifiable, and that work. 
And of course, it's off the track. It's off the grid of human thinking. But who cares? If NSA has used it and tried it and funded it, and it's working and can be taught and transferred, teams of people can be put in place to be looking for commodities, for minerals, for mines, and would save a ton of time and money so that investors weren't really betting, really betting in an area and having to wait 10 years to see if there's something there, something to ponder. Pretty wild, isn't it? It works. Of course, it's going to change the world. It's going to make somebody extremely rich. It's already uh, here. If it works. And it totally works. Even then, I beg your pardon? It not only totally works, it works in real time. Well, wait a minute. If it works, why don't they tell us where the oil is? Why don't they tell us where well, the gold you, is? You absolutely can. By the way, there's other methods, but this is a very serious protocol that's used. It's kind of like controlled clairvoyance, but you should maybe, you know, at your leisure, when you're doing your workouts, listen to that interview with Paul Smith because he'll tell you literally what they do. You can go back in time and you can also be in real time. The biggest problem with bringing in new knowledge and discovery is dealing with other people's mindsets, as you well know. It's worse in science. It's horrible in academia when you're bringing in new knowledge, particularly in the realm of exploration and discovery. I interviewed a guy named Bill Cox, who is a dowser, who was the person, he's now, I think, almost 90, but he worked with Vern Cameron to go in when Lake Elsinore was dried up in the 60s, located water below aquifers, get that, below aquifers, had to instruct the drillers a totally different way to drill. A, they weren't used to looking for water below aquifers, so there was a shutdown in the mindset. B, they didn't know how to drill below the aquifers at that point. And he was the one who brought up all that water in Lake Elsinore. And to this day, most of the people think that water in Lake Elsinore is just regular rainwater rather than coming up through super cold steam. So exploration and discovery is so exciting. And when you have the opportunity to work with people who are open to new knowledge and who are receptive to new ways of getting things done and exploring and discovering, things can happen very quickly. So I wanted to tell you about that just as part of whatever it is that you're doing, that the lag time between the investment in a mine and actually locating something can be totally minimized, totally minimized. Something for you to ponder. And if you're interested, you can listen to the show with Paul Smith. He was part of the psychic espionage program called Project Stargate. And I think it would be interesting food for thought as a method that could be used for good instead of spending hundreds and thousands and millions of dollars on mines with this thing of waiting 10 years, which is a deterrent for investors. And most people want to invest short-term, unfortunately. They don't understand long-term investing, and they're not on board with long-term investing. But I think you're more rare in that way than most people walking the earth. We're in the now Pop-Tart society mindset. So I just wanted to share that with you as a, as a thought. All right, that most very few people are open to new methods or new thoughts of anything in the world. You must know that famous, what is it, that the first when a new idea comes along, 
everybody ridicules and laughs. First they ignore you, then they laugh at you and ridicule you, then they uh, accept it, and then they try to take credit for it. Exactly. It's been proven. I will say, if Mr. Smith, I, I, I don't dispute it, I'm just suggesting that if Mr. Smith is right, why doesn't he find some oil for us? The proof is in the pudding. Water story is great. They went and proved what they were talking about. Nobody doubts them anymore. Prove it. Something is going to end this bull market in commodities. All bull markets have come to an end. Whether it's in stocks or commodities or anything else, this one will too. And maybe Mr. Smith has the answer. But instead of talking on the radio, we ought to be out there finding some oil if, if it's legitimate. Actually, I'm not trying to sell Mr. Smith, nor did I interview him for that reason. But I've been interested in that program because of the knowledge that there are things that can be located without years and years of traditional methodology. That's all I'm saying. But he is already every day proving what he does. You should probably at your leisure listen to that interview and see what you think. And if you are interested, you should call him and let him do something for you to find whatever you're looking for. All I can tell you is the speed at which things can get done now is amazing. And just because a lot of these methods are not known to most of the public, it's because most of the public is shut down to 99% of new knowledge. And it's unfortunate, but it's the fact. It's a fortune to be made finding oil. If he doesn't know that, I don't, why do I waste my time? If Mr. Smith doesn't know that there's a gigantic fortune to be made finding a gold mine, please. I would like to talk about a bull in China, since you are a bull in China. <laughs> And it's so exciting how you've described the opportunity in China. I had no idea that the transportation is transforming there, agriculture is transforming there, jobs are transforming there. You describe five different industries, at least, of this boom that's happening in China. Why do you suppose it is that Americans, I can't speak for the rest of the world, but Americans are still lagging and dragging and weary. Is it because they feel the Chinese are so different or we feel the Chinese are so different or what myths we've been told? Well, it's back to what we were talking about before. You know, it's 300 years. Then they had this disaster with Mao Zedong, this communism which, of course, there was the Cold War, and we were all spreading horrible propaganda about each other. They were telling people terrible things about us and we about them. Uh, and so people came to believe that China was a disaster, etc. And it was. It was a disaster. But 30 years ago, that changed, and they started unleashing entrepreneurship and capitalism again. And that has led to one of the most astonishing booms in the history of mankind. They, they still call themselves communists, but they're among the best capitalists in the world right now. I know people say they're the best capitalists in the world. You know, Massachusetts is more communist than, than China is these days. <laughs> California is more communist than, than, than China. But most people just think it's like what the story with commodities before. A major change has taken place. Most people are not aware of it. You're bowled over. Anybody who goes there sees what has happened, especially somebody who was there 30 years ago and then comes today and sees, oh, my goodness, it's not the same anything. 
The Chinese have had recurring periods of greatness in their history over the past several thousand years. They've also had recurring periods of disaster for about 300 years. Up until 1979, well, that's all changed now, and people should understand that. You talked about agriculture transforming there, medical insurance is becoming available in China, travel is booming, transportation with new mag trains and planes, new airplanes and airlines, even a green organic theme is going on as well. I wouldn't have thought that at all. I would suggest that people look out their window. First, they look around their house, look around their office, and look out their window. And everything that's happened to America in the past 100 years is now happening in China. Although in some cases, they're ahead of us because, you know, we have bogged down by a little bit by our history. I mean, we have landlines for telephones, hand phones everywhere because they have leapfrogged you know, over that whole generation where we all put in telephone lines. They skipped that. They don't need them. Um, we don't need it for that matter. But we, in our history, because of history, we have a lot of phone lines still. So all you got to do is look around, see what's in Europe. The same thing is happening in China, only very, very quickly, because they're playing, trying to catch up. They're building roads. They have the best highways in the world right now. Only they learned the Americans and the Europeans and the Japanese how to build roads, and now they're doing it at a very rapid rate. I mean, whatever you see, they do because they want to live like we do. You know, I opened a new Apple keyboard today, and I looked at the back of it, and it said, Made in China. Everything we see, I mean, there's so many things that are seemingly... You look at products that are all made in China. It's hard to ignore. What What is it? Well, we you're, you're exactly right. The world is changing. Now, don't don't get me wrong. And I explain in the book that there will be plenty of problems in China. We in America had plenty of problems as we rose to power and, and glory. They will too. But right now they are in a, a boom phase, a growing phase, and. They can produce things cheaper than we can in many in many areas. And also, I mean, China produces something several hundred thousand engineers every year. Not every decade, every year. We produce hardly any engineers in America, as you know. The education, the the ambition, the opportunities are much different in China and therefore they are growing. I mean, a hundred years ago, we were the new kid on the block, and we boomed and had a spectacular, spectacular period. The British had a great period in the 19th century. This has happened throughout history. The Spanish did in the 16th century. So nothing unusual about it. It happens to be in this particular era, China, that is the, the new kid on the block. Is your daughter named Happy? Yes, one of my daughters is named Happy. You're right. What's your other daughter's name? Well, her name is Belen, which is my middle name and family name, but we call her Baby B. She is known as Baby B. <laughs> Baby B? Darling. Baby B, yes. What? She is quite a, she, is a, she works like a bee. No question about that. I notice you're very concerned about your kids, and I notice you wrote this book, A Gift to My Children, 
of Father's Lessons for Life and Investing. When was that written? Oh, well, it was written over the past four years. It started, I was born in 2003, and I started thinking of all the things. See, I came to parenthood late. I used to think children were a waste of time and money <laughs> and energy, and I, I never wanted to have children. I used to feel sorry for people who had children. First, I should tell you I was totally dead wrong, completely wrong. These little children are so much fun for me. I cannot get enough of them 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And I started, you know, trying to teach some things and all the things that my parents had taught me and all the things that people should know. And then I started writing them down. The next thing you know, turned into a book. That's awesome. I wonder if the people in finance are actually, because sometimes people get myopic in a certain industry and they only want to read things about how to make money. But I wonder if, how is it doing? Are, are, is it out there or is it kind of a quiet book? Well, it's been published in several countries. In Taiwan, it was the number one bestseller of any kind for seven weeks in a row. Um, it hasn't done as well in America for some reason as in many other countries, I think that's because my publisher published it as a an investment book for young people, which you know is totally not what it is, not at all what it is. So they they mischaracterized it. Uh, but it's, it's surprising enough, it's done much better in the rest of the world than it has in America. Well, I'm going to read okay. it. It's it's one of the books I haven't read, and when I saw that, I thought, wow, I'll bet. That book is coming from your heart, and you're probably speaking to your kids while you're writing that book, right? And thinking of them. Oh, yes. So I imagine it's, it's the best. It's lessons I want my children to grow up with for life, and needless to say, investing is a large part of life. And if you learn many of the rules for successful life, also carry over into investing. You know, be skeptical, don't follow the crowd. Beware of the boys. You know, all those all those rules <laughs> that apply to life apply to investing as well. When you came to having children later in life and were kind of astonished at how much fun you're having, your days must be very different now, are they? Oh, yes, yes, yes. No, I spend as much time with these kids as I can. They have the focus of my life. I'm more interested in that than just about anything that you can, that you can imagine. Are are you amazed that they've touched you the way that they have? Oh, yes. No, as I said, I used to not even notice children. Or if I did, it was because they were bothering me. Uh, but now I notice, I, I know, I understand my parents better. I understand all of, there's a whole class of people out there that I never knew about before, known as parents. Well, I now understand them. I know about them. I see them. I observe them. I observe children all over the world now, but these were things that I did not know or care about two years ago. I mean, not, not two years ago, six years ago, seven years ago. <laughs> now it's now I'm consumed by it. You know, I'm like a lot of people who convert to something. I'm converted to parenthood, and that's what this book is all about. That's amazing. I've heard. Hope how to make them successful, happy people. You can ask me in 30 years if I got it right or not. You know, as I watched a lot of your interviews in the traditional interview context and, you know, financial news and Bloomberg, 
you get asked a lot of the same questions over and over and over of people wanting tips and what do you think about this and that. They don't really ask you a lot of questions about you. And I see in your interviews that you're very passionate and you're very connected to what you're talking about. You can even see when you're getting upset and you're getting frustrated with the interviewers or the people that are asking you questions or people that aren't really getting it, what your mindset is, what your message and your teaching is. So parenthood has to be altering the course of your life and your destiny. Is it hard to travel now for you? Oh, no. No, I... These, this, someone told me the other day that life begins when you have children. Uh, I will have to say that that's true. I'm still extremely interested in the world, extremely interested in adventure, extremely interested in investing, but my main focus now is these little children. Awesome. I still do invest, needless to say. I have to pay the rent somehow, and so I do am attentive and looking at things. But I do have to worry. I do worry more about them than most things now. It's a very different world than it even was 50, 60 years ago. For me, uh, and it is for these little, the world in which they grow up is going to be totally different. But, you know, and we're going to have to stop soon because I'll fall off the bicycle. But uh, if you look at any decade, you pick a decade, 1980, and look at what happened, how the world changed over the next 10 or 15 years. Pick any year, 1900, doesn't matter, 1990. The world and what we knew in 1990 is so totally different now from what we all thought in 1990 or 1970. Or and that's one of the things that I'm trying to relay to these little girls in this book and in their lives because I know that the world in which they grow up you know, the world over the next 80 years is going to be so different from the world that we knew over the past 80 years. I am going to read your book, and I would like to invite you back after I read your book to talk to you about a gift to my children, a father's lessons for life and investing. Well, I hope so. But in the meantime, let's stop. Otherwise, I'm going to fall off the bike. Well, I want okay. to thank you. Thank you so much, Jim, for making time available on a Sunday morning in Singapore while you're riding your bicycle. <laughs> Stationary, I hope. Stationary, yes, yes, yes. God bless Otherwise, you. Thank you so much. Rich. I'll send you a Very link good. to the show. Many blessings. Bye-bye. Bye, Jim.